Our battered suitcases were piled on the sidewalk again. We had longer ways to go, but no matter. The road is life. Jack Kerouac on the road. We all carry suitcases filled with the flotsam and jetsam of our experiences. These satchels are that which is us. And we open them and share them in order to connect. Every road is an adventure. Every path a journey. Most are mundane and normal. Some are quite peculiar. I'm Don Hall, and these are my peculiar journeys. All right, welcome to episode 74. Um, I, I missed a week, and I promised that I wouldn't, but while I was recording episode 74, I got a phone call, and it kind of interrupted the entire last six or seven days. Um, with that in mind, I, I just want to share, um, I'll tell you, I, there, there's part of me that thinks thinks that John Irving is writing my fucking life story um, as I'm living it. Uh, maybe I'm the circus bear. I don't know. But uh, it was a very bizarre moment. Um, I'll tell you that uh, upon returning from Wichita, and when you hear the story, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Uh, immediately I came in, I had to come back to Vegas uh, earlier than I wanted to because I had to have my COVID testing and uh, I had to do some supervisor training for our casino. It looks like we are going to open. Uh, hopefully, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to shoot. I'm going to guess June 1st. That's what I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess we're going to open June 1st. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm still working. I'm still paying paid. Everything's good. Dana and I are fine. Um, and uh, I will tell you uh, at the end of the story, I'll, I'll, I'll update you on a few things. I'm not entirely certain that this is my story to tell. I can't refrain from writing it as the experiences are searing scars in my flesh, and they are there to see. If I'm stepping over some sort of line, I offer my apologies in advance. Synopsis. Meet Don Hall, a casino manager from Las Vegas during the 2020 pandemic shutdown, and his wife Dana. When Hall gets a late-night phone call from his niece about the death of his nephew, the stage is set for this story of grief, crematorial logistics, and a spastic pug hell-bent on crippling Hall's mother on Mother's Day. It was in the newspaper. Wichita police are investigating after a body was discovered in the 200, 200 block of Southwest Street. Police said a body was found in a vehicle in a restaurant parking lot just before 6 p.m. on Tuesday. Wichita police officer Wheeler said at this point no foul play is believed to be involved and investigators are trying to find out what caused the death. The person who died is to believe to be a man, but Officer Wheeler said the body was, quote, too far decomposed, unquote, to tell any other details before an autopsy. Now, if you're the sort who combs the news for these sorts of blurbs, this was right there to see. No foul play, so it doesn't get any viral videos online. The description that the body was in the full force of decomposition to the point that the sex was almost indecipherable is grisly, but couched in language that tamps down the horror. This person, found in his car dead for days, was my 19-year-old nephew. 
His mother, my only sister, knew he was missing six days prior. We all knew. A missing persons report was filed. His older brother, older sister, and I jumped onto his media accounts and tried to see if any one of his friends had a bead on him, and no one did. We constructed hopeful fictions. He was high. He smoked a lot of weed and dabbled in other drugs and was sleeping it off. He decided that his life in pandemic Wichita was too much, hopped in his car, and was en route to Vegas to hang with his uncle. He lost his phone and his car was stolen. He'd been arrested and was too embarrassed to call anyone. The thing about hopeful fictions is that they turn out to be just that. Fiction. The truth was harsh. My nephew had called off work and hung out with friends. On the way from one place to another, whatever drugs he'd taken made him sleepy enough that he pulled into a parking lot of a restaurant closed by COVID, fell asleep, and never woke up. My niece called Tuesday night. I was at work staffing the empty casino as management, and her wavering, tearful voice, we need you here, he's dead, was all I needed to move my ass. Dana and I were on the first flight out of Vegas, COVID be damned. When we arrived, we headed over to my sister's home. I felt like tits on a bull. I didn't know what to say to her that wouldn't feel like an intellectualizing of death or trite self-help pablum. Losing a child has to be on the far end of tragic, and I have no experience in parenthood and little when it comes to death. Grief is an alien presence. I'm like my mother. In lieu of dealing with our emotions, we want something to do. So I waited. Eventually, once done adjusting to the strange pattern of what felt like normal conversation doing normal things, broken up by one of us stepping on a landmine of grief, bursting into hot, angry tears for a spell, then returning to the faux normal again, the doors began to open. I could see tasks in front of me. I could be of use. How to cremate your nephew. There's an odd disconnect between dealing with legitimate grief and typing budget cremation Wichita into the search bar. Turns out that the average price for a basic cremation, transport of the deceased, alternative fiberboard receptacle, simple cleaning of ashes of things like shirt buttons and buckles, basic plastic box for completed service and copies of both the death certificate and coroner's report and release, runs about $3,000. After a few hours, I found a reputable service that would do it for $1,100. I called, explained the situation. Oh, oh, that was your nephew. I read about that and booked the service. For a bit of time, I filled out the online form for the death certificate, some basics, and then the out-of-left-field birthplace of the father question and his social security number that I had to then call my niece to fill in the blanks. All in all, it was an essential and very clinical start to my avoidance of the feelings. As I got on the phone for the 45-minute call with the crematorium, Dana and my mom decided to go for a walk to my sister's place. My sister was still in a deep sleep, so Dana grabbed her six-month-old spastic pug to give him some pooping time. 20 minutes later, my phone indicated Dana was trying to call me. I couldn't answer as I was in the middle of cremation speak. She called again, then she ran into the house. Your mom broke her leg, and she grabbed the keys and bolted. The dog had gotten under my mother's legs, and she dropped like a wet bag of cement, fracturing both her right leg and left wrist. 911, an ambulance. The hospital, the hospital that, due to COVID, allowed no visitors. When it rains, it pours.
My sister was still in a place of disbelief. Her son was gone, but she hadn't seen his body. She spoke about him in the present tense. She wanted some visual confirmation, but the only photographs of him were taken after five days of decomposition by the police. She wasn't going to see him, even if she desperately needed to. It's like the people who died on 9-11, she said. She wears his clothes. She sleeps. She picks out and orders an urn for him that she thinks he'd like. I just want him home. My niece and older nephew drove down to stay with her. When she sleeps, her face is full of tension and her mouth is fixed into a hard frown. The nephew has to go back to work, but my niece is staying for a bit longer. How to dispose of a vehicle contaminated by decomposition. There was some discussion about his car. My sister thought she could just give it to her eldest son or sell it, but it was locked up in an evidence impound and was a serious biohazard. I called Aftermath, the nationwide company law enforcement frequents to clean up crime scenes. 4000 bucks to remove all the parts of the automobile contaminated, plus whatever it would cost to replace those parts. Keeping the vehicle was not an option. Despite this, it was in my sister's name, and we were responsible for getting it out of impound before she was saddled with liability. The national auto charities deal with this sort of thing. I arranged for a tow a few days later, transferring a salvage title for a tax credit and removal of the car. We guessed the title was in the glove compartment because no one could find it, but I used a bill of sale to verify ownership. The charity will file for a duplicate title. Having to explain over and over how he died and the circumstances of the vehicle have a numbing effect on me. I'm successfully avoiding grappling with the grief that sits under it all like a viper waiting to strike but biding its time. Grief is biding its time until I'm done doing things to distract. It wants all of my attention. It wants to cripple me. The plan was to hold a memorial in the park for family on Saturday, but with my mom in the hospital and effectively hobbled, my sister decides to hold off until his grandmother can be there. She asks if I can make a memorial video for the future service and airdrops hundreds of photos for the task. How to make a memorial video of your loved one without cascading into a nonstop fight with crushing sadness. You can't, or at least I couldn't. The dispassionate focus on the timing of the pictures in sync with the three songs chosen held me for a bit. Expanding or contracting transitions, using the Ken Burns effect on faces via iMovie, using quotes Dana found to transition things. Very technical, very distancing. But in order to complete things in the pieces necessary, the filmmaker using that title loosely and with some irony implied has to go back and preview things. And the first look at the first 10 years of his life took my legs out from under me. My face clenched like a fist, and I tried to bar fight the tears and lost. Of everything I found myself doing to run from the well of despair and horror, this 10-minute video was the most difficult. I'd argue in this moment it was one of the most difficult tasks I've had to do in 54 years. I've heard the phrase gut-wrenching before, but never understood it until now. One of the unrealistic things my mother tried to instill into my evolving psyche was what she called the three days rule. The idea is that no matter what befalls you, death, the loss of a job, a divorce, whatever, you have exactly three days to grieve, mourn, piss, and moan. On day four, get up off of your ass and get back to life. 
as unrealistic as it sounds, especially in the age of victimhood and social media therapy, the lesson tends to stick with me. It also creates a strange barrier within me that prevents the grieving from commencing until long after the tragic circumstance. What occurs to me is that my experience, my sister's loss, the labyrinth of strange tasks associated with the death of a loved one, all are incredibly common. According to the internet, 150,000 people die globally every single day. 150,000 mothers deal with loss. 150,000 uncles grapple with cremation or funeral arrangements. While each death is highly specific to the people most affected, living through death makes no one unique or special. You see what I meant when I mentioned the intellectualizing of death? I frame my nephew's passing as death by misadventure. The drug thing is so laden with blame and rage, but at its heart, drugs were his way of recreation. Really no different than alcohol, gambling, sex, playing football, working out, or rock climbing. If, if he'd been rock climbing and accidentally fallen to his demise, no one would seek revenge or accountability. Death by misadventure. No judgment. Now, Dana found a box in mom's basement marked Don. It was filled with crap from my senior year in high school and freshman year in college. She wanted to go through it, and I just had no interest. Eventually, I did go through it with her, and I realized why it seemed so odious to even consider. These were photos and effluvia from when I was my nephew's age. These were old college IDs, prom pictures, a self-made time capsule of me before I really started to experience life. He would end just as I was beginning. I took some time looking at myself at 18 and 19 years old and pondered all the life I would have missed had I inadvertently died in my car six months before my 20th birthday. While life is short, as they say, it can be full. My life has been incredibly full, and the gratitude I feel for the opportunities to make mistakes, love, lose, work, create, and bathe in my small corner of humanity is astounding. Unlike the mourning of someone who's had that fullness, the mourning for someone so incredibly young has a different flavor. It doesn't taste of the tried and true, but of the life unlived. The memories of him are brief and each has a more pungent quality for that brevity. I'm reminded of a scene from the film Minority Report. A child has died early, his father and mother unable to move past the grief. A character with precognitive abilities takes a moment to describe the boy as he grows up and becomes a man, lives his life, giving the parents a moment to see in some way the possibilities. I see my nephew's future in a similar way. Accomplishments never realized, Love he will never feel, birthdays, holidays, and experiences he will never have. My sister tells me there is a hole in her, a vital piece of her that is gone. When she tells me this, I understand that most of the tears I have angrily shed are for her. As for my grief, because I can't write about the mourning of my sister, his siblings, my wife, my mom and dad with any expertise, I suspect that while the landmines will thin out some, I'll still find myself stepping on one from time to time and being overcome. The thing about running from grief is that it is patient and will always catch up. A few updates. My mom, uh, she did break her right leg and her left 
wrist. She had to have surgery on the leg. They put some pins in there, and they had said initially that she probably would have to go to a rehabilitation hospital. Turns out mom's in pretty goddamn good shape for a 70-year-old broad, and so they sent her straight home. She was home Wednesday afternoon, last Wednesday, and uh, while she can't walk for six weeks, she's at least home. She's with my dad, and uh, everything's good. Uh, On top of that, uh, Vicky did get the ashes. She bought a beautiful urn that's very decorative, um, and it is in her house. Um, and, uh, uh everything is, it, it's so weird about grief because everything's kind of back to normal, except there's no Ryan. He's just not there. And, uh, I mean, it doesn't affect my day to day so much as I'm in Las Vegas and I've got other things to do. But I know for certain that it affects my sister's day-to-day, and it affects my mother's day-to-day, and it affects his sister and brother's day-to-day, and it affects my dad's day-to-day. It's, it's, it's a big loss. It's a big thing. Surprising, again, how many people I've heard from that have lost uh, nephews, sons, brothers under similar circumstances. And... Uh, and, and it's, you know, as I, as I said, and I, I hate to intellectualize it, is that, I mean, people die. It is as I, I was watching, and I, one of the things I've done in the pandemic is I suddenly realized I had the time. And I'd never watched any of Game of Thrones. And I started, I just decided I had to binge watch Game of Thrones. It's time. It's over. They finished the season, so let me watch it. So I've been watching it. And one of the moments with Arya Stark sticks out in my mind, and I just keep replaying it over and over, when he's the, she's taking what she what her father calls dancing lessons, it's really fencing lessons from this, basically a Spaniard, a very flourish, and he, and he says, what God do you worship? And she thinks about it, and, he, and ultimately the answer is, there is only one God, death. And he says, what do you say to God? What do you say to death? Not today. And I find that to be very interesting, given that we're living in a pandemic, given that uh, I just lost my nephew, is that, that death really is the only constant in all of our living lives, the only single constant that we all can claim, regardless of what we've decided our political identity is, what our life is like, rich or poor, black or white, there is only one specific constant, and that is death. We are simply meat sacks being held up by bones, and we're very fragile in that way. As badass as we think we are, as master of the universe, we may feel like we're at any moment, this is so tender and fragile. And so it's given me a whole different perspective, I think. Um, I, I'm still not fully... Uh, cured in this uh, particular Dutch oven, but I, I it has given me a, a whole different perspective on the things that are or are not important in a regular daily grind um, and in our very strange, broken state America. Sorry if it was a downer. Um, We'll have some more upbeat stuff next week. And thank you again for listening. Have a fantastic, safe week. (laughs) 
this has been another episode of the Peculiar Journeys podcast. For archived episodes, go to donhall.vegas slash podcast to hear stories of Chicago, of Millennium Park, and of the big move to Las Vegas. If you dig the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and review the show. If you really dig the podcast, why not go to patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and help fund the endeavor. Whatever you decide to do, thank you for listening, and I hope you come back for more of my peculiar journeys.